And if I were imagining my daughter, younger people, the future of life, unborn life, a new planet, a new system, an ear beyond the ecosystem, the planetary orbit that we're in, our galaxy, this universe, this dimension, some audible way of recognizing this conversation, speaking to him and her, whatever that intelligence is, what would we want them to hear? What would I want to share? Study whatever it is that allows you to know yourself in relationship, that cognitive, transparent consciousness, for lack of a better term. Know how you delude yourself through self-deception. Study the machinations of denial, repression, delusion, and do everything you can to imbue the Sanskrit word dharma to inner being and interbeing. Welcome to the Naked Guru Experience, hosted right here in Usada, Ubud. There's beautiful surroundings here. Um, thank you for agreeing to do this, first honored, of all. Honored to be here. Great. It's a real pleasure to, to have this conversation with you. Uh, the Naked Guru Experience is conversations of philosophy, spirituality, and psychology with some of the most unique minds on the planet. Um, for me, my friend, you are one of the most unique minds that I've ever met in 10 years of being in Asia mm. and thousands of people that I've met along mm. the way. And so for me, you are intelligent, insightful, inspiring, articulate, and sometimes controversial, sometimes for some provocative, uh, but always unapologetically authentic and true and honest to the best of your ability. And so that's one of the reasons I'm really going to enjoy this conversation is your blunt authenticity. And I hope I can be authentic as well in who I am during this interview. Okay. Good. Good. Um, you've lived in war zones across the world, in Yugoslavia and Burma. You've, in, at times of serious social upheaval, you've uh, been in, in war zones in times of genocide. You're a published author of numerous books, including Burma, The Killing Fields and A Future to Believe in which I've just finished reading and I really enjoyed. And thank you for sending that to me. Um, you, you have been a Buddhist monk, for, meditated for years at a time with some of the most renowned and uh, prestigious uh, mindfulness teachers in the world, including Ai Pandita. And you've been a spiritual teacher yourself of sorts and subsequently lost your flock, as you would call it, um, for some of your more contemporary views. So chose to leave my flock. I chose to leave your flock. Yes. Okay. Never really wanted to have a flock. <laughs> Never got involved in the transformation industry to have students. Or, it's just something that I've moved on from. I never got involved in it to be a leader. Right. Right. So, so 
This is an open conversation. So we have a, a slight skeleton framework to work from, which is your life and what you've been through, what you've done, what are your views now, what's what's inspiring you to the moment, how did you get here from, from where you're from, what inspired you when you were younger to become who you are. It's a free and open conversation. And I'm just gonna try and ask what's on my mind and hopefully that's interesting for the people that are listening and watching throughout the discussion. So I'm happy for you to start wherever feels good for you to start and wherever you'd like to start. And thank you again for doing this with me. Well, Ryan, um, thank you. Um, thank you for your listenership and viewership. Um, I think I would start with saying that I don't see myself as very special. And I say that not with false humility, but being broken on the shoreline of my own denial, deception, and arrogance, if you will. I wanted to say narcissism, but I'm not convinced yet that I'm really that narcissistic. I might walk into it in time. Yeah. <clears throat> Especially if your vodcast and podcast takes off and I become viral. Um, we're prone to being human. I think that's what I'm saying, is that I've seen that so much of my journey has been false awakenings. And probably all throughout history, it's the same story. But what I find unique about me in my own conscience is that I was humble enough to see my duplicity, at times my own hypocrisy, and uh, my false assumptions about states of attainment. Coming from a Buddhist tradition, a very deeply meditative tradition in mm. Burma, you mentioned, with yeah. my first teacher, the Venerable Sayadaw, Mahasi Sayadaw, who was often thought of as the most world-renowned mindfulness teacher of modernity. Mm. His successor, Seda Upandita, taught thousands of students, tens of thousands of students. You know, they, they espouse, not unlike a lot of traditions, they espouse, if you do this, this, this action, sustained, mm. mindfulness of the mind, mm. sustained over weeks and some months, you will attain classical insight, wisdom, and possible stages of enlightenment. Mm. And it was the most astounding theological intelligent expression of consciousness on the terms of its own discovery that you could free yourself from self-generated conflict just by doing this mm. and so i said sign me up <laughs> what age were you then by the way well i began meditating i would call it in earnest probably at the age of 20 68 today yeah i got involved in yoga when i was 17 became a vegetarian I had a day of silence every week for years. Mm -hmm. I did a lot of entheogenic psychedelic exploration. Very rarely was it recreational. Mm -hmm. So meditation, the Buddhist tradition, when I finally got involved in that post-Hinduism in pranayama, which had its own relative you know, benefits, mm. but the mindfulness tradition offered deep lucidity, if you will, on developing an intelligent rapport with consciousness, mm, mm. like the ecosystem. We do this to the ecosystem, we'll denigrate it. If we do this to the ecosystem, we'll protect it. Yeah. The same thing with consciousness. Do what you can do here positively to inf influence its beauty, its luminosity, and most of all, its freedom from self-generated suffering, mm -hmm. the Buddha's first noble truth. Mm. You create your own dukkha, your own mm. suffering. And that made so much sense to me. Do this and you can relieve yourself from the tension of self-generated suffering. And mm. that made so much sense to me. And yeah. that you could grade that development based upon the 
the relaxation of greed, fear, anger, all the centrifugal forces that hold you down, mm. so to speak. So, so can you tell me about when you first moved into that, that world, into the world of the monastery, what, what was that like for you? you know, what was the, the culture shock, as it were, or the, the, the things that were really, you didn't expect? How, what did you expect and what happened that you didn't expect? Well, I went there out of survival, living in Los Angeles as an artist. I'd been to India with my partner at the time for over two years, in Ladakh and Nepal and Sri Lanka and Thailand, meditating. Yeah. And got tired of being on the circuit, so to speak, of this. And I really wanted to be in Burma. I'd been there for a week, but it was a dictatorship and you couldn't stay. And so this plagued me, this unrequited spiritual love affair with the Oxford training of mindfulness was in Burma. Yes. And I went to Los Angeles. I lived out my life. I wanted to be a filmmaker, an artist. I did those things to a relative extent, but I went into deep denigration on a psychological, spiritual level. I became a thorough addict. Mm -hmm. And I found that there was something quite beautiful in those addictions, that it protected me from suicide in prison. This was with alcoholism or ph pharmaceutical drugs? Well, or it was addict to... I used them discreetly. Okay. <laughs> I used them in intimate combinations, but it was pharmaceuticals, it was alcohol, it was sex, it was art, it was conversation, Everything. it was masturbation, it was yes. morphine. Yes. It was avoidance, it was avoidance, it was avoidance of me looking at me intimately, exploring me on the terms of my own self-love. I knew nothing about self-love. Right. It was completely anathema at that time. Psychotherapy was foreign. Jung was still alive, probably. I can't go that far <laughs> back. But there were very few psychotherapists. Yeah. The ayahuasca world was gone. It wasn't even on the table. It was still down in South America. Yeah. So deep psychological transformation wasn't really part of the paradigm. And because of the abject involvement in the psychedelic world, most of us who got involved in meditation wanted to experience that in an organic way, mm -hmm. rather than constantly going up, come down, to mm. come down. On the latch, as McKenna might call it. Yeah, and what, you know, what's his name? Um, Alan Watts mentioned, when you get the message, you hang up the phone. Yes. We got the message. LSD wasn't the issue. Mm -hmm. Coming down was a problem. Mm -hmm. How to stay up into higher luminosity states of mind. Yeah. And Buddhist meditation offered that particular potential. Mm -hmm. So I went to Burma. I was there maybe when I was 26 or 27, petitioned the government, and they granted me a longer-term visa. And I sat in this monastery 20 hours a day in silence, uh, which were the requirements to be in this monastery called the Mahasi Meditation Center in Rangoon, started by the former Prime Minister Unu. And we sat in one-hour sections of one-hour sittings, one-hour walking, uh, two meals, no food after 12 noon, of course, no masturbation, no sexual contact, no mm. eye contact, mm. no verbal contact except with your teacher. When you say we, you were the only Westerner there, right? No, there was maybe three or four of us. Oh, right. Wow. Yeah. And they lasted about six months, and then I became pretty much the only Westerner there for about the next year, year and a half. Mm. Uh, but that was... I didn't see it as something special. This was something that I wanted to learn from the best teachers available to me. Mm -hmm. And so I really lived in deep accordance, if you will, with the system of expectations. I kept to the promise of silence. I kept to the promise of the schedule. I kept to the promise of the precepts that were expected of monks there. And I found an enormous delight in confronting the, the greatest addiction of my life, which was avoidance of me just stopping mm. and calling off the search for the morrow. <laughs> uh, the whole yeah. endless Seeking. line, the endless line of cocaine, the endless line of sexual intimacy, the endless line 
of money, the endless future that never really gave off the radiance of what it promised through desire. Mm. It always receded like a shoreline that never really you could walk on. Mm. And so when I started to confront desire, that there was a greater joy in seeing desire come and go than trying to fulfill desire or avoid fear, there was a tremendous joy in my life. Mm. And I had no need to fulfill it through the requisites of normal Western passions. Mm. And so time went on and you have mentioned that one of your inspirations at this point was Ram Das. At some point, one of the inspirations to kind of go on the journey in, in the first place. I said spiritual. that? Yeah, I have Was that Alan Clemens that said that? Uh, uh, yes, it definitely was. It wasn't that it was a good thing that it was Ram Das, but uh, you, were, you had listened to, just for anybody that doesn't know as yeah, well. Yeah, let me uh, Ram Dass, clarify that one. Uh, just to highlight, Ram, Ram Das was, um, was a psychologist born in 1931. He, um, his original name is Richard Alpert. And uh, he, he was teaching at Harvard, got awakened through the use of uh, mushrooms with Timoth Timothy O'Leary, uh, went over to India, met uh, Maharaji, wrote his book in 1971, which was uh, Be Here Now, just to highlight who, who, who we're talking about here. Uh, I had heard you say before that, uh, God damn him for inspiring me to go and uh, drop out and tune in, as it were. That was satire. All right, okay. And my show is spiritually incorrect. <laughs> Just be clear about okay, that. Okay, okay. But I can easily critique the, the beauty of what was written in that book, Be Here Now. I read it when I was 20 mm -hmm. on acid. Yeah. I've been doing it since I was 16. I read it with my partner one night. We read it from the beginning to end. I don't recommend reading that book on acid. <laughs> uh, what made remarkable sense to me was the concepts in it about Buddhism. Mm. It wasn't Ramdas. No. It was just, the oh, wow, wow. These are the Buddhist teachings that essentially the first noble truth of suffering, that things are so transient, so impermanent, so anicca, as they say in the Pali language, that there's no place that you can call solid ground. Mm. And here we were reading these pages, dissolving in time and space, on a tapestry of war around the world and ecological damage and wars throughout history, our bodies were dissolving, and the whole concept of a Nietzsche or impermanence became a living present reality. Mm. And I said, my God, this teaching of the first noble truth is, is palpable right here. Mm. I read the second noble truth, that if you attach yourself to any of these particles, these photons, these bodies, these minds, this time, this life, this breath, you will only suffer. And it made so much existential sense to me. And where do you relieve yourself from this existential conflict? Right here, right now. So at the end of the book, in the workbook, cookbook section, it offered mindfulness or vipassana meditation. Mm -hmm. And those were the two things that I really bowed to the holy ground of eternity to whomever consumed that book, Ram Dass and his friends, yes. to bring forth the Buddhist teachings to me for the first time. Right. Beyond that... All the Hanuman Hinduism stuff, it's like I'm not into existential polyamory. It's no. just no interest to me whatsoever. And gurus... Could you, could you define that for me, existential polyamory? Well, just Vishnu, Shiva. I mean, that's what you are when you're Hindu. Right. You're falling in love with multiplicity of different images and, and deities. Yeah. In Buddhism, there is no deity. No. There is only consciousness and the way it functions. Mm -hmm. So all that kind of mystical iconography was like kind of an Eastern Catholicism for me. It was just kind of artifice. Right. I had to read through that in the book, frankly. I found that to be like weeds okay. <laughs> for me. 
All right. I have no connection to the whole Hindu story. I have nothing problematic about it, but I've been in India a long time. But the Buddhist world was very fascinating to me. So I went to a place where they took being in the moment seriously. Yes, in the monastery. Yeah, they, yeah. but it, the, being in the moment is not in any way the end all of the spiritual practice. It's like the beginning portal mm -hmm. to begin to see what you see there. It's not being in the present at all that delivers you. No. But so the practice became very compelling to me. And what was the hardest part about it in the, in the monastery? What was the, the most difficult thing going from a Western civilized culture, as it were, to then moving into the monastery? Well, you can try. Anyone can try. The most difficult thing is to sit and watch your mind. Mm. You can be anywhere in the world. You don't have to be in a monastery for that. But just to sit and to decompress from the social, cultural, political, sexual pharmaceutical, economic addictions that we're so unaware of. I mean, the dopamine pump in my hand, constantly swiping and hashtagging. How many hours a day? I turned off the timer now. <laughs> so when you turn off the timer of your own mind and sit there without the need or the desire or the ability to escape mm. into something else, which I don't deny escapism, but meditation was a direct confrontation with everything that I had avoided, namely myself. Mm, mm. And it's just not an overall sense of self. It's like, who are you? Who are you emotionally? So that's one area that's difficult. I wonder if you could just, uh, I, I have heard the story before because we have spoken before on this. I've heard you speak before, but maybe we could go over the, um, the, the small anecdote about the dog and the milk um, outside of your room during the, the time in the monastery. I just think it's a very interesting perspective. Uh, for our listeners to, to listen to. Well, it's, you, it's easy in a monastery or it's easy in life to assume that how you feel is the result of something external to yourself, mm -hmm. which I don't deny. I mean, I've been in war zones, as you've mentioned, and girls don't create their own reality when they're gang raped. No. It's a dysfunctional, cruel, abusive concept. In a monastery, though, you're given the experiment to assume 100% responsibility of your own mind. Yeah. Just give it a go. And so whatever arises, assume that you have a choice to control its intensity, its frequency, and its occurrence from reoccurring, or you can release it and just let it be. So you can study the machinations of either engagement and or mindfulness and or letting go. Yeah. So one of the things that meditators see very frequently is how they project onto phenomena people, places, and things. Obviously, you're Ryan, I'm Alan's, this is Usada, this mm -hmm. is in Bali, mm -hmm. there's the Pacific Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, but water doesn't really know distinctions mm -hmm. any more than nationalities. So you really can't experience a continent, you can't experience an ocean, there's just water. Mm -hmm. So in a monastery, they teach you to see the distinction between ideas of things and the direct experience of them. And so you project your ideas like almost like images on the cave walls of your own mind. And mm -hmm. you assume those astrological people, event systems to be true, but they're in fact just constellations of thought that mm -hmm. have no real basis in reality. Mm -hmm. So you blame, judge, and scapegoat are the first three things you see as a monk or a nun. Mm -hmm. How easy it is to assume that the dog barking is creating your disturbance, or that the cocaine is the problem, the alcohol is the problem, she is a seductress. You know, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. And so you assume 100% responsibility. So you're constantly watching how you construct blame, judgment, and scapegoating righteously. Mm. And you have no other way to just be mindful of its arising, 
Oh, wow. I feel conflict because the dog outside of my window, which you're referring to, is barking and growling. And I raced out there in the middle of the night. Why the fuck are you disturbing my peace dog into my mind's eye yes. with my flashlight? And there I saw this, this perfectly gorgeous female dog, mm. skin and bones, feeding her offspring who had their eyes still closed, mm. grappling for a breast. And I immediately saw these children of the universe had no eyesight whatsoever, and they were internally in conflict. And I said, that's exactly how I am. Mm. I have my eyes wide open, but I'm looking for this primordial breast, this nipple, this endless nipple with this en endless existential milk to satisfy something that can only be satisfied inside. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I finally felt for the first time how I project a lot of my blame and struggle externally. Mm -hmm. I went to my teacher, told him my great insight after three weeks of intensive meditation, and he said, that's very remarkable. And he told me a story of some swindlers in Burma that a woman from Mandalay, she had never seen the ocean, she went to the Bay of Bengal, and she was enthralled by the different colors of this spectacular bay. The pirates who sell colored water, as you can get the hint of the story, took her out on a boat, mm. and they sold her all these different colors of water in brown bottles. And she took them back to Mandalay and tried to sell them. And when she was selling them, she realized they're all clear. Mm. My teacher made the point, just like consciousness, it's clear, but you color it with different states of mind. Until you're aware of the colorization of consciousness, you will assume that often that color is external. Mm. Do, do you believe the teachers that you uh, learned with, these, these mindfulness uh, masters, do you think that they are emancipated somehow from, from that or they are just conscious of it and able to observe uh, uh, th those kind of uh, thoughts that come up and that judgment and, and, and those kind of experiences that you just highlighted? Interesting. Interesting. Do you think that they are emancipated from it? Very interesting question. You know, I've, of course, every, it's on everyone's mind. Yes. How do you really know the assessment is accurate of another person's consciousness, mm. their depth? Yeah. And on what terms do you uh, assess someone's depth spiritual intelligence, mindful intelligence. In Buddhism, they have a very distinct hierarchy of development. It's all based upon the relaxation and the overcoming of what they call destructive states of mind, greed, anger, and delusion, and their various nuances. Mm. And so a fully enlightened mind in the Buddhist tradition is the absolute absence of fear, mm. the absolute absence of anger, the absolute absence of greed. I mean, who do we know who has the absolute absence of delusion? Even with your eyes being carved out, there's no fear. Who do we know like that? So no, I've never met anyone. I've never met anyone claiming that. There's only Westerners who write best-selling books that claim guides to enlightenment. Mm, mm. The Asians, the masters that I've met from Burma, the Buddhists, don't claim that at all. They're just the opposite. Mm. I think what me and you have in common as well, we have an interest in enlightenment, but we both share a skepticism of enlightenment. Oh, well, more, I than do anyway. skeptic, more than a skeptic. <laughs> yes. I, again, skeptical. hear my point. Is most people that claim it, are Westerners who go to the East or don't even go anymore. Mm -hmm. Just go on Wikipedia and pick up a phrase called the power of now. Yes. Sit on a park bench and go crazy in the moment and repress their sexuality, call it a guide to enlightenment, yep. go on, on Oprah, they're a bestseller, yes. and they're enlightened. It's mm. complete poppycock. Isn't it easier to get a little bit closer to what one might think is enlightenment by ostracizing yourself from society and abstaining from anything? Any I would drop the all? label enlightenment altogether. Okay. <laughs> it's like saying someone has omnipotence. Uh-huh. 
How about resolution of consciousness? Could I say It's that? still too absolute. Mm. I mean, what does absolute anything mean in an infinite universe? Mm. There is no absolute north or absolute south. We're in this vast mystery, to say the obvious. Even children know as such. Mm. To think that our little three-pound brain that can be deteriorated with little things like dementia, mm. that even the Dalai Lama can forget his own 14th incarnation if he gets Alzheimer's. Yeah. What does that say about the nature of your truth? Mm. The limitation of the mind. The limitation. limitation. Get a root canal and your pieces upset. And the limitation of our language as well. You know, the structure, the framework of our language, the the basic syntax that we use to talk to each other and talk about these things is itself constricted, right? Only in as much as we believe and don't examine the language, which I think is a very important point. I've gone on and on in my groups and talks for years about Dharma literacy, Mm. mindful literacy, spiritual literacy, the syntax, the grammar of consciousness. One of the keynotes for me is to study in the machinations of self-delusion, indoctrination, dogma, fusion with concepts, ideas, pride, narcissism. I've often gone off on people saying that the main thing a teacher should reveal is not so much their depth or insight or their wisdom, but to share with their not even students, but to share with the congregation of people to be in their presence how I have lied, Mm. how I have known self-deception. No, 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 no. How I still live in self-deception. Which is a lot about your your idea of authenticity, right? This is a key characteristic of you, authenticity, and how you talk about authenticity and how you you yourself try to be authentic in the company. I would say, not being a contrarian, but that's that's an element of authenticity. What I hear here for me is the humility of insight to realize that when you claim truth capitals, A, absolutes, E, with an E, enlightenment, all the various things called the denial of humility, Mm. all those cultisms that you've picked up in books and in your own kind of vacuum cleaner of narcissism, they're lies. And here, the grammar, the spiritual mindful intelligence is to know how you lie to yourself. Mm. That is a very delicate, important area of mindfulness. For you, why do we lie to ourselves? Well, that's a really interesting... Question is for it me. associated for the, with the ego in some way? Like it's an, another egotistical kind of adventure? Listen, you know, you and I hardly know each other. No. Obviously, with listeners who are watching us, they don't know me. They may know you. Mm-hmm. They may have read books. It would be very easy to annoy them. Yes. Okay, my point is, you could purposely do something to really upset them, kind of as a social experiment, and just to point out how easy they are triggered. Mm. And so I bring this up is that the the requisites of fear in our culture are we don't want to alienate. We want to belong. And we're deeply embedded, as it's been said, in a homicidal capitalistic economy where even the young lady from Sweden, Greta, is nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize by telling the world, along with many thousands and hundreds of thousands of people, we're on the precipice of an environmental economic collapse where there could even be near-term extinction. Mm. We don't know what we're doing. We're blind, we're arrogant, and we're very unhumble about that. And I think at this time in 2020, for this next three, four, five, ten years, I think we all, it begs us to come down from the throne of our own denial and lead with the humility of how we're learning together 
across this very jagged landscape of the human condition as it intersects with the confluence of the environment. And my God, the existential anxiety that I feel, I often talk publicly and privately to my own soul, but how vulnerable I feel. We're in an existential anxiety zone today. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really behoove us to live in the projection of these magical thinking lies. I think there's something much more organic about putting food in each other's plates. Because we don't address the reality of the situation. Well, some do and some don't, yes. but I think it's really important, especially for cultural hypnosis, to belong to a community, to belong to an ideal, to hopefully have an ideal that will save us from this devastation of climate chaos mm. and from war and from genocide and from starvation and from just being human with a body that inevitably is programmed to be old, if you're so lucky, and be diseased and die. Mm. That is a big dilemma. I, I wonder on that point, uh, <laughs> if it could lead us to your experience in war zones. Uh, you have any, uh, anything you can tell me about, uh, any salient um, lessons learned? Or, I can. You know. One I'd like to say is that I'm no veteran of war zones. Uh, I use the word carefully. I have been a student of complexity in areas of extreme conflict. Mm. I've walked into situations unbeknownst to me that I was going into areas of war or conflict where there's human rights violations, or even when I did my first book in the jungles of Burma, where it bordered with Thailand, which was Burma the next killing fields with a ford by the Dalai Lama. I spent two months up close to war. Mm. Could you just highlight what was going on there for, for anybody that doesn't know about well, that, that scenario? Well, Burma is a succession of dictatorships, mm. and they were dominated by the British for 150 years. And so rather than, as an American, how we export and sell the franchise of violence and scapegoating worldwide, we obviously sell more weapons than most countries make worldwide annually. We love killing as sport genocides in Iraq, Afghanistan, look at Syria today, look what we're doing in Yemen through the proxy of Saudi Arabia, on and on and on. Mm. Burma was dominated by the British for 150 years and five, year, five decades of dictatorship. They inverted, what I'm saying, psychologically their violence on their own people. Mm. And uh, I happened to live there for some time, became very enmeshed, deeply involved in them as family. That was my spiritual home. I love the Burmese people, not just the Burmese, but the Karins, the Shans, the Kachins, the Rohingyas, it's a multi-tapestry of ethnicities and languages. And it's rooted in timeless teachings that they often call Buddhism or mystical teachings of wakefulness. Mm. And so when I was there in the 80s and the early 90s, the military was going after the Karin Christians, very much like they've gone after the Shans up in mm. the north, the Kachin Catholics, and of course then the Rohingyas. But that's a complex issue there. So... Um, Everyone knows Burma's Nobel laureate. She was imprisoned for many years along with her colleagues. I was blessed to do a book with her in 95 yes. and 96 called The Voice of Hope, which uh, by her own testimony brought her nonviolent revolution to the world. You can find that book on Amazon, by the way, um, for anybody listening. I recommend it. She's a remarkable person, and she's even more remarkable because of her deference to her colleagues and friends. Mm -hmm. It's a culture that's decades of violence, systemic torturous totalitarianism. And here we have this woman and many people, 50 million people, living as hostages under their own military mm. for decades. And they chose to not demonize, vilify, or violently overthrow this regime. 
And that's very rare in the world to see that. And, and that's because of the Buddhism, because of their fundamental beliefs. Is is it as pacifist? I assume. Get the book, The Voice of Hope. I asked her, <laughs> Brian. I asked her so yeah. many times, "What's your philosophy of nonviolence?" She said, "Is Alan." It's not a philosophical ideal as much as is it a practical solution mm. to an intractable problem. Mm. Uh, the contentious issue here is that she's been painted not as such, not as a pacifist, right? Publicly, I mean. Read it in the book and sure. write me, direct message me. Okay. She, yeah. I, for me personally, my humble research and knowing her as a friend and many of her friends are dear friends of mine, mm-hmm. uh, do the research. I mean, she's sure. a remarkable politician as she would say and she's unjustly vilified Mm. scapegoated and by a lot of the liberal press and a lot of the misogynistic leaders around the world who just want something different than what she is saying and doing and I feel that not really looking into the issue professionally personally Mm. Mm. and you were also in Yugoslavia for good stint as well. Right? I was in, in Croatia. Yeah, I was in Zagreb for a year in Croatia. Yeah. I was asked and hired to write a film by a very dear friend of mine, Bob Chardoff, mm. who did all the Rocky and movies. Yeah. To write a book, excuse me, a film on what love was like in the time of war and genocide. Mm. And so my friend, longtime friend, was a senior representative of the United Nations at the time and invited me to come and live in Zagreb, where she was based. And I have to say, I went silent. Uh, It was the first deep confrontation that I had seen. Uh, You asked me earlier about lessons learned. Mm -hmm. I was always a kind of us and them kind of guy, an ideologue. And if you weren't really an ardent spiritual Buddhist meditator, you really weren't with the program. And then in Yugoslavia, and certainly in Croatia, and then later on in Sarajevo, I saw that people like you, young men, blue-eyed, educated, articulate, (laughs) Alan, older, brown-eyed, somewhat articulate, somewhat educated, people like you and me have latent, call it whatever you will, accumulations of denigrating states of consciousness that have fanned by xenophobic, beliefs infused with your own attachment and fears and your family's threatened, your culture's under siege, you will kill in the name of, call it what you will, truth, democracy, Allah, Hanuman, God, your genitals, your money, your wife, your family, your Christ. And I began to see in that war zone a three-way ethnic cleansing between the Croatian Catholics, the Bosnian Serbs, and the Bosnian Muslims eventually that the very thing that I easily could judge as so incomprehensible as to commit violence in the name of something, I could do it. If you, if you could do it yourself. Listen, if someone were threatening you right now with a knife and a gun, and I had the capacity to take them out, yes. I would take them out. Yes. Could I do it? Absolutely. Mm. And you're a perfect stranger. Mm-hmm. Imagine if it was my wife, my, mm. my daughter, my God, my daughter. People talk about letting go and non-attachment in Buddhism, but it's, it's my fucking daughter, for God's sake. I'm not going to let go. Mm. I'm going to cling with everything I've got. And I've gone on about how easy it is to fuse with ideas of the Dharma rather than the incredibly jagged, complex edge of reality. War zones teach you about reality. 
a very yes. harsh reality, that very things that you often judge you can do. So you become, I feel, more humble, more committed to your yoga, the yoga of authenticity, the yoga of innocence, the yoga of I refuse to participate in that state of judgment and blame. I refuse to scapegoat, scapegoat, scapegoat you. So you've got to be very watchful of righteous indignation in mm -hmm. war. And so coming into the now, we're, what, what, what are we doing now here with your World Dharma talk here in Usada and in, in, in Ubud? Uh, how has what we've just spoken about shaped where you are now and your current thinking? Because you've been through it, right? You've been through the meditation, you've been through the yoga, you've been through a lot of the paths that a lot of people are on. And what I personally think are, are very useful paths, you know, um, they, they have utility. You know, I don't know where they lead. I haven't followed one far enough to know. But, um, but for you, where have you come through it at the, at the other end, I guess? You know, I'm looking at you with how to answer this complex question because <laughs> the emergence of World Dharma, which came as a result of being in the killing fields mm. in Bosnia just after the war, after the massacre of the 8,000 Muslim boys and men at Srebrenica, we were out there and just the level of darkness and horror. And I, there I really began to see that I want to know more font with religion. That what I judged the Bosnian Serbs to have done to the Bosnian Muslims what the Americans have done to do this, that Alan could do as a dead right Buddhist and take you out as a dead right Muslim. And so I decided that I had to drop my ism, which was really to question my certainty about my own attainments, my own development, my own orthodoxy with the fluency of concepts. Mm. I was very able to speak about Buddhist principles in groups. I had well-attended retreats. And so I stopped teaching and cut way back on my unquestioned relationship to dogma and formally dropped Buddhism at that point. Right. And the only thing left for me was, what am I on about? <laughs> and it came down to this concept that I was introduced to indirectly through Desmond Tutu in South mm -hmm. Africa. Mm. And eventually the world music movement, you know, sacred music, where people from different cultures and different musical genres get together, you and me and groups of people, and we do something uniquely different that's never been done before. Mm. And so this never been done before Dharma became world Dharma. And just the Desmond Tutu thing, this was uh, Ubuntu, Ubuntu, yes? Ubuntu, yes. the South African concept, which is very intimately tied into the Buddhist concept of Bodhisattva without the Buddhahood. Mm -hmm. And it really means that I cannot be... Sorry, I could just explain that a bod for anybody that's listening that doesn't understand what a bodhisattva is, that would be a monk that's, or a, a man that's gone off to be out into the forest to know himself, separated from society, and then come back and integrate it into uh, to society, society again, yes? That's the... That, that would be what you're talking about? No, that's, okay. that's, it's, a, it's a classical theological definition. Okay. <laughs> how I use it is to extract essence from it, almost to the point of heresy. Right. <laughs> and make it trans-denominational, trans-cultural, trans-spiritual. So okay. Bodhisattva, although a Buddhist Pali word, Sanskrit, in Ubuntu, South African, extract culture from it and make it the deep mutual belonging of existence with itself. Right. The deep mutual belonging of existence with itself, coupled with the felt organic interplay of shared space. Mm. I use the word felt, meaning that if you and I were talking about water and swimming, 
It would be one thing to talk about it, be a whole different thing to be in water. The Dharma yoga to me is the immersion in direct, intimate, felt reality. An experience, yes. Experience, not as an idea. You and I are breathing. Mm -hmm. The audience who's watching are breathing. Mm -hmm. To really play into the energy of oxygen. Right. And to really see that, okay, you're breathing, you take it for granted. But with that in-breath, there is absolutely no certainty except one, that it will stop. So right there in that interplay of that reflection with the organic felt reality of oxygen, yoga, and dharma is the sacred. Mm. The sacred here is that I can't live without you, Ubuntu. Mm. I can't live without you, Bodhisattva, meaning the deep trans-spiritual, deep trans-theological experience is what is the intelligence between you and I that takes your idea and my idea and goes higher to something new that evolves your idea into something higher and more. Mm. So it's extracting from the definition its essence, which is freedom. Take away someone's freedom, they suffer the greatest loss. So world music is the freedom to play outside of your box. Mm. Oxygen is like the wind. If you try to box it, and if you're successful, you get Buddhism. You kill it. Buddhist statues all over the world. You kill Allah as you empower Allah. Mm. Wind is wind, air is air because it's free. Religion is death. It's a death cult. Do you think at its essence, it has the essence that you're talking about through Ubuntu? It, 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 when it began, when, when the original ideas came from Jesus, came from Buddha, no, not a, at its essence, does it I'm have really, that? The I'm sacred, not a spiritual you know? anthropologist. I no, really no, don't no. know. But no. I can answer that. If you and I treasure so much the interplay of what we're alive in sharing together, mm. Look at our shared language, how rare it is to find individuals who will honor with any degree of gratitude how we learn to be able to communicate. Yes. Look at the clothing that you wear. Look at the place that we're in, Scott's vision with all of his colleagues and friends. Yes. Look at the deep interplay of mutual belonging mm. that we just take for granted on the top of a wave, surfing it as if the ocean's ours. Mm. But with compassion and empathy and gratitude and deep, deep regard for giving back. Ubuntu is I can't be me without giving back to you higher. So it mm -hmm. takes me out of the cult of Alan and brings me into the shared trans-religion of us. How do we proliferate such a thing? How do we, is it by doing what we're doing right now? You know, or is, it, is it by dialogue? Is it by advertising, dare I say? I don't know. How do you proliferate it? Someone who's hungry will hear someone who says where the food is. Right. <laughs> Someone who's really hungry will not take the idea of the food to be nutrient. Mm. They'll say, where is the food? And so to the extent that you and I actually are nutritious in our invitation for others to participate in the revolution of mutuality, mm. will overcome the cult of self-centered striving. Mm. And meditation to me is anathema to self-fixation. And that's the big thing today that I think we're transitioning from, which is of course we have to heal. You, you can't expect someone with malaria, or I should say something of a communicable disease to heal someone who is without that disease. Mm. You, you transmit. And so I think we have to be very careful about prematurely thinking that we're able to teach, which I think we're seeing a lot in the world today. Yes. So uh, you mean that by kind of... Uh, young shamans and young 
Well, I, I am enough that anyone who calls himself a shaman should be avoided, especially if you're white <laughs> or from the EU yeah. or Australia. Yeah. And by and large, anyone who has a Hindu name should stop it. I feel like the, the danger, Go back it's, to your it, it's easy to get tangled up in the fashion of what we're trying to achieve here. You know, Religion was an old way of doing it and, and, and a dogmatic way which we get fixated on, in the, whether you be a Christian or a Muslim or whatever. But even the spiritual community itself is a very fashionable and... Uh, and easy to get tangled with up in two. Yeah, Maybe we, we don't get then to the message to the heart of it. Well, that's polite. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the industry of anxiety, the industry of trauma, the marketing, the market value of suffering, the playing into stress. Look at Forbes 500 with Google and American Express and Goldman Sachs and Facebook. And I mean, they, they sell mindfulness to other employees. They've got entire departments that teach meditation now to keep stress at bay when in fact probably stress is the best thing that could ever happen to these employees mm -hmm. to break lockstep with the corporate killing machine right you mean that within the pit of their suffering they would come out of it and awaken yeah, from it yeah it's you know? it's it's the marketing of stress as a as a sign of something going wrong when in fact from a healthy spiritual point of view from my point of view it's an actually it's good news that you're actually depressed because it's a depressing situation to work in these systems mm. where you're often denied your soul, denied your creativity, denied your essence. They're the new war machine. Mm. I mean, <laughs> it's so baked in at this point. The, they've called it the homicidal capitalist economy, which is essentially another way of talking about the corporate killing machine. Mm. That we're on the precipice of global annihilation. We're killing 200 species a day that are going extinct. And we're ourselves in this anthropocentric uh, slide over the cliff. Mm. I mean, it, a little while ago you asked about you know, what, how I feel about a particular topic. I'm not sure exactly what the thing was. But it's like it brought up the issue of what really matters to me. Mm. And about, about world dharma and... You know, some people, professional people, scientific people, smart people, informed people who listen to smart scientific people who analyze the data, people around the world today with Extinction Rebellion that came down in your country of England, yes. the young Swede, and people all over the world now are talking about civil disobedience as an essential response to the killing machine of corporations and governments that are in denial. Mm that you are the problem and that we are participants in that global addiction. My yes. foot pedal is belonging to my foot. My dopamine pump belongs to Alan. The bill goes to me. I am a participant in murder. Yeah. My point is, is that what really matters today if we're going extinct? Okay, take the existential, you know, uh, question out of the, the, the world of, oh my God, the extinction word. Well, there's been five previous ones. The planet is going to dissolve at a certain point. We're in an inhospitable universe, no matter what kind of spin you want to put on it. Yeah. We can only see seven miles up. Yeah. We're in a mortal circumstance, both individually and planetarily mm -hmm. and galactically. No one promised us eternity. And so facing existential, mystical human reality today is front and center. Why is Greta calling for all of her classmates worldwide to boycott Friday? You know, the joke is today, Alan, you've watched your breath for nearly four decades, in-breath, out-breath. There may not be any oxygen a year or ten from now. Yeah. What is that? And you have a daughter that's quite passionate about this also, right? Well, she's, she's 
she's smart. She's sensitive, and her mother and me, primarily her mother, keep her somewhat immune to what she's quickly growing into in terms of a wisdom. Mm -hmm. She's taking next year's school off because she doesn't want to belong. Right. That's a big statement when yes. you're going into seventh grade. Yes. I don't want to participate in this system of dysfunction. Mm -hmm. I don't like the teacher. I don't like what I'm learning. Big statement. And her mother said, spot on. And what did her dad say? Go for it, girl. Okay. But more to the issue is, it goes largely unnoticed that I'm saying things like the possibility of near-term extinction. And that's not just all of a sudden we're rosy and happy having a sauna and it's death for everyone. It's a big downside. There's a whole degradation of civilization where the electricity could go off, where the yes. financial institutions can collapse. I mean, we're having to deal with things that no one in history that we ever knew, except in ravaged war zones and famine areas, are even conceiving. Mm. And so the point being, what does your spirituality look like today mm. if the electricity goes off and you can't get your yoga teacher training? I think one of the most difficult problems with that is that we are complicit, as you say, and we are hypocritical in some way because, you know, we have to use this technology. We're using it right now, you know. It's, it's what we have available in order to do what we do as a species. And the hardest part of that is there's such a momentum is how do you pull it back? Do you shock people with it? Are they looking at what's happening in California with the fires? Are they looking at what's happening all over the world with the weather? I've seen it, and I've, I read Catherine Ingram's work that you recommended. And Facing I, extinction. I recommend that anybody to have a listen to that that's listening. Um, I'm not fully sold on the idea. I think there is still some way we can technologically uh, get through this as a, as a species. But what I'm trying to get at is the momentum it's difficult because we look around and we feel hopeless and, well, what can we do? You know, I can stop using my plastic, usually lasts a few weeks. And then the studies show that people go back and use more plastics than they ever used before. Um, I think I would recommend that people start with watching Greta's TED Talk, 11 minutes of a 16-year-old telling the world what she thinks about the future of life. Mm -hmm. And then I would suggest that you read Catherine's piece, Facing Extinction, and not believe a word. <laughs> don't believe anyone and certainly don't shoot messengers no but take it within your mystical spiritual yogic journey which mm. I feel that I've done and Catherine's done and lots of other people mm. and integrate where you meet it mm. again as a Buddhist from the age of 18 19 the first noble truth if you're awake and you feel your breath and you recognize life historically and in present time in the future all beings all things perish mm. There's no mystery to that. But all of a sudden, we're in an existential landscape where we all could perish. Yes. That, to me, is an existential crisis of unprecedented proportions. Not unfamiliar to those who have done various things, entheogens and meditation and yoga, but nonetheless, to a younger person who's attached to the future of life, look at the people who've spent so many years and decades espousing being in this moment now, eye contact, the cult of me looking at you, looking back at me, mindfully looking at me, when in fact, how many American Indians told us way back when we were kids, look at the present on how it influences seven generations of life out. Mm -hmm. My generation was so lost with their breath, so lost with their me, so lost with their sex, so lost with the endless guru between my legs, called my <laughs> orgasm that I was having or not having, Yes, we lost sight of the future of life. And look what we're at today on the precipice of global environmental 
economic collapse. Just briefly on, on, on this, is um, just because I have my own interest, really. What are your thoughts in that possi- the possibility of the next stage of evolution of us could be AI, could be the mind, your mind, my mind, everybody's mind, put into one system. And that system then doesn't use any human resources like we do. It doesn't need a planet. It can, it can transcend the body, i.e. within the next state of our evolution. We know the sun's going to burn up. We know resources are infinite. What about, I mean, this is a personal idea and some inspiration from Terence McKenna, but it's, what if that is the next stage? Yeah, I can't wait for a machine to do yoga for me. I mean, it's really, <laughs> I mean, I just don't like yoga. I just really want someone to do it for me and program my mind with a little chip so that I do downward facing dog without me even well, wanting to. Maybe not it. me and you. We wouldn't be here, you know? Yeah, well, it would be you know, me. I don't take what you're saying lightly, no. you know, and I have to say that I would encourage boys and girls everywhere in the world, wherever you are, in Nairobi, in Berlin, in Sydney, in Melbourne, wherever you find yourself, that you have a creative, existential, mystical moment where you're out of the box, where you're out of the loop. Mm. You're the Giorgio Bruno from the 15th or 16th century in Italy where you saw (laughs) that the world was not centered around the earth. You told the church we're in an infinite universe. Mm. They burned him at the stake for not recanting. Okay? Recant. Okay? Find what I'm saying to be foolish. Find Greta's story to be something to challenge. Mm, mm. I encourage deep ethical, mystical courage and intelligence. Find the next great organic trans ayahuasca, the DMT of God. Mm. Whatever it is, the metaphor of transformation that takes the riddle and resolves it. Mm. Okay? I'm all for it. That's what I've been calling for. An existential rebellion. In my particular dilemma, in my particular journey, not to get overly passionate about it, but it's a passionate topic, is, you know, having been in war zones, having been alive, I see that there is one rape in the universe, to me, is one rape too many. I don't want to be one with that God. I don't Mm. want to be one with that tapestry. Mm. I don't want to see it as an illusion. I want to iron out of this organic infinity any proclivity for the fabric to violate itself. So... To me, it's a trans hope. I don't care whether there's an extinction or not. And if someone's got a remedy, someone says, here is a meditative way of looking at the universe, a trans breath experience, Mm -hmm. a trans entheogen. Mm -hmm. Here, download it. All of a sudden, the whole world reboots to a sacred garden. I'm (laughs) I'm down on it. Which is also what a religion would say in what many I, ways. Okay, hear, hear me out though. <laughs> yeah. Bear with me and thank you for probing. Thank you. Yeah. What we're pointing to here, as I hear myself, is the power of imagination. Yes. However, prayer, mystical thinking, existentially infused hope, the power of the mind to bend a spoon, to bend the universe to put a man on the moon, to put a man in another dimension, to have a UFO really in real time. Oh my God, I'm an OMG type of guy. Bring it on. (laughs) Yeah, you'd like to see it. That's why I gave up Buddhism. Right. That's why I gave up my success. That's why I gave up my money. That's why I gave up, gave up. And I want to hold off on the orgasm story. Mm. I want a mystical woman, a community who dances to higher rhythms and frequencies not yet known. Mm -hmm. World Dharma. Mm. world transcension, world existentialism, something out of the box. But do you see that the, the, the thing holding that back is usually 
internal personal dysfunction, societal dysfunction, which comes from internal non-acceptance. You got it. You know, that's right back to the power of study Dharma literacy. Mm. Study meditation for me and yoga for me are very inseparable. It's the study, the felt study and the more conscious relaxation of the ways in which we create centrifugal gravity to hold our story intact. Mm. If there's oneness, I want to experience everything above and below. Oneness is not just merger. That's just a limited human predictable fusion with the idea. Mm. It could mean infinite intelligence, which means exactly what you're saying, that it's not AI, it's HI. It's deep human intelligence. Yes. And that's the thing that's missing today, is that we have lost the mystical adventurer. We're so tethered to the commerciality, the influencers, the slight, the, the, the hashtags, the, the, the followers, the money, yeah. the applause, the numbers of attendees, numbers, numbers, all Likes analytics. <laughs> Fall asleep. We should de ourselves from numbers and come back to the openness of mystical wandering using deep imagination around the fire of friendship and community, what Scott has done here, what a lot of people in Ubud are doing, what people are doing in Bali, the rare oasis around the world, people who care mm. about protecting higher order intelligence and mysticism, trans mysticism today, how to think beyond what we can't feel. Mm -hmm. And that's where I try to take the risk to be out of my comfort zone. I stop preparing. I stop being perfect. I stop being... Stop as much as humanly possible. That's mm. why when I, my former partner and I, when we were attracted to each other, we decided to be celibate for the first several months. Right. We wanted to reinvent intimacy. And that's I want to reinvent transformational wisdom. And that's, that's where you feel you are now here in Ubud. That's what you're trying to achieve with the World Dharma Public Forum. You're getting a collection of people together and, and talking about these kind of okay. ideas. One of the inspirations. You will not hear me say this very often, but... My experience in Bali and Ubud, especially, I used to live here for four years in the 80s, first mm. time back in 32 years. I rarely will say this. It is a serendipity of remarkable synchronicity. My friend Paul also in Byron Bay would be listening to this and appreciating this, but a few friends know this, and Scott is one of them. The serendipity of the mystical that you can actually call off the search for the desires that you think you need to have on the terms of how you think you need them and just walk towards, as Scott told me, walk towards God. Mm. Run towards God. Embrace the vision of your soul, Alan, and let someone catch up with you and go, hey, do you see what I see? Ubud has been that way for me. Mm -hmm. And so it's been a serendipity of the most remarkable connections mm. where an individual, Sophie put us in touch together. Scott offered me. He listened to my talks. We've offered them as donation-based. We're broadcasting them in the world. We met you through Scott and Sophie. Mm -hmm. And here we are. We're sitting today in the citadel of humanness, doing what we can to make the best offering for the higher order frequency of a life of peace for more people than just our own community. Yes. That's breathtaking. Yes. If you and I can do that in our own humble little way, and more and more people catch on, I can break lockstep with my cult. Yes. I can break lockstep with my commerciality. And ideology and dogma and whatever. Let's call for it together. Yes. Let's call for the absolute re-envisioning of how I go about my spiritual practice. Let's come down off teacher trainings that cost so much. Mm. 
Mm. Let's offer them freely and live more on patrons. Mm. Let's call on corporate globe to give so much more than you give. Let's do what we can to free each other from belonging to the cult of my corporation. Mm. And let's do everything humanly possible to disavow ourselves from the comfort zone of our own narrative and keep alive freedom of thought. I have a question that I've been wanting to ask you for a while. I've never asked you before, but um, you have just spoke about walking towards God. Okay. And for, for, from what I've learned, there are many different uh, things that can be thought of through that, depending on how mature or um, how well read you are on the topic, I guess. But what is God for you? For me, it's not a, a deity in the sky, but what is it for you? When you say walk towards God, what are See, you walking we, towards? Beautiful. If you and I just threw in, you know, a high dose of, of Pantanjali uh-huh. or a high dose of Nibbana or Nirvana mm-hmm. as metaphor for luminosity of a transcendent wholeness and use language that we didn't really know the definition of, except that we risked being inarticulate of existential heart. Mm-hmm. And we just played in these new dimensions, speaking in post-tongue thought experiments and did things together through yoga and breathing and food and mystical chanting and deep shavasana and dying and dying and dying and breathing and seeing a baby born and bringing the girl in from Syria that's being fucking raped by God. And we just crack open our comfort zones and bleed and cry. We might have a moment where there's a new music. We've got to do that. But all of those things you just described there have one thing in common. They're all deeply human. They're all deeply human experiences, yeah. And the most and the deepest of our experiences. I, listen, if I wasn't on camera and I had this little thing that put Pantanjali right into your mouth, <laughs> you can tell me whether it's human or not. And I'll tell you, my experiences in being in high areas of conflict, and you see 30 girls here who've been systematically raped by soldiers. Mm. It is higher and more transformational than any ayahuasca, any DMT, any LSD, any Mm. meditative experience. Your mind is fucking blown. Mm. It's human and it's existential. It's sick. God is a terror act. Mm. And that's part of my deal here is I'm tired of being one or pursuing one or enlightening the fabric of totality. Human is cool. But reinventing human out of the box of dogma and religion is even more cool. What else do we have? Required, yeah. What else do we have besides the filament of consciousness? And can we rarefy that? Mm. That's the question. That's the beauty of timeless teachings. One thing that worries me about the, the perspective, though, me personally, from, from my limited knowledge of it, Whereas, is uh, about the uh, perspective of you give up the dogma. You know, you give up these rehearsed ideas that we know are not fruitful. We know people that have followed them through and, and they're not leading to any enlightenment. Uh, my issue is the danger of nihilism in that. Like when you pull the belief structure, you pull, pull the belief system from underneath somebody, whatever that might be, what do you, this is a Jordan Peterson idea as well, what, what would you replace it with? You know? Listen, if right now, I mean, in a perverse kind of way, the, the universal judgment of the pathology of President Trump is complex as that psychology appears to be. In a weird, perverse way, it's so much more preferable to me 
<laughs> I'll tell you, and I know this seems politically so much more preferable than the calm, composed, smiling sociopathy of other presidents who just commit murder and drink wine at night. It yeah. le- you know what I'm saying? Yes. It's something very sick about that level of serial killing. Yes. I mean, so... It's done with a smile on a facade. Pretty weird. Whereas now it's kind of out in your face. It's, it's, it's there on display, you know. It's uh, not intellectually covered up in any way. So in a way, I'm thinking that... Yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, before we go into the, you know, the political realm, it's, um, it's a minefield. Um, so I think um, I'd like to just touch on when you were a spiritual teacher, when you were actually, you had this following. Um, could you tell me a bit about that time and, and what ideas you were talking about then, which now you'd look back and maybe say, I was wrong. One grave mistake I made was not understanding sufficiently. And I know hindsight is always twenty twenty, so I'm not trying to crucify myself. Mm. And I had a teacher actually say to Upandita and Mahasi Sayadaw and friends in the monastery who were very vigilant about self-honesty. And unlike a lot of other trainings, teachers in my tradition never really sanctioned any of us to teach. Right but I was blacklisted from the country and I felt like it was the only thing that I really knew to do, which was to share, not teach, but to share the wisdom of my meditative training. Mm -hmm. And I did it as humbly as possible. The shadow of that was that I had no real regard for the deep enmeshment of my psychological, cultural, political life with human instincts like sexuality and hunger, belonging, emotionality, the woman as a heterosexual. Because of your abstinence from it over the no, just, period of time? Or just, just being born as an American, middle right. class, into great rock music and Hendrix and acid and dance and meditation and play and going out of that and mm-hmm. coming back into this culture after five years without sex. Yeah, so some form of absence from it as well. It's, uh, yeah, but I... touch with the flirtation and the... You end up in a privileged position. You have lots of people who are adoring you. And you start believing your own shit. <laughs> end of story. You start having an affluent, not big money. I mean, back when I started, mindfulness was sort of taboo even to say quietly. Now it's like people who came decades after I are multimillionaires. Yes, and we see the, the documentaries coming out about Osho and, and, and these kind of these gurus that have, have gone that way. I know. What are your thoughts on, on, on that? Like, again, I was saying earlier, I think I can't critique each of the people, but by and large, psychologically, it's, it's really, I guess it's a wish that I would have around the world, whether it be a Catholic priest or a Muslim cleric or a Vipassana meditation teacher, or a yoga advocate, anyone who has a system is to do what they can to try to bring in one or two people in your life who really call you on your shit, who aren't looking to be your student, who aren't looking to be financed by you, so that you put your financial, emotional, psychological needs in check. Mm. One, 
You need mentorship if you're going to be in a role of sharing. And very few people have mentors that are authentic and honest and wise who question their commerciality and question their authenticity and question their honesty. Mm -hmm. So the issue of self-honesty, walking your talk, having various safeguards in your life to, to protect you from your own unrecognized pride. I think this is more of what we need rather than a witch hunt on men and women who often are very legitimate and very sincere. Yeah. But we need more regulation in which there's people in the world who hold people accountable. Yeah. That's all. An ethics committee. Mm. And more intimately within your own tribe, people who you can confide in and talk with about your own shadow. So was there a point during being a teacher where you said to yourself, hey, maybe what I'm doing here isn't fully authentic? And you obviously made a clear change. You decided to leave your flock, is what you said. And I'd just like to discuss that why no, and, and what it, happened. Then. It wasn't that clean. And it right. wasn't that... What happened for me was that I was going along in a very peaceful way. I was thrown out of Burma okay. by the dictatorship three or four times. And I was forced back into the West. I didn't want to be there as a monk. I'd done it before. It was horror. And so I did the thing that I did in the monastery, which was leading retreats endlessly in different places, primarily in America and Canada and Australia and a few places in Europe, simply to keep active my meditative yogic life. And I met beautiful people on the terms of an intimate rapport. It was a beautiful life. Mm -hmm. And 1988, August 8th, a year before China's Tiananmen Square, I got a phone call from Burma where there was gunfire in the background. And people may remember that Burma was under siege by the military regime when student-led revolution spread to all cities and millions of people took to the streets demanding an end to one-party dictatorship and multi-party democracy. Yeah. And the regime had orders to shoot and within a week those on the scene said up to 10,000 people were killed at close range. Right. Some were friends. Yeah. My point is, is that from that I was horrified. Mm. My window pane of composure, equanimity, my country was under siege. My spiritual home, my friends and my family, the monasteries, who knows what was going down. Yeah. And I went into the country underground soon thereafter. Right. And I only went simply to be among my family and my tribe to see what I could do by helping them in times of need. I didn't go there for activism or any other reason. Mm. And I was quite horrified by what I saw and what I witnessed and what happened to them and what happened to me. As a result of those three months, a book was asked of me to be written called Burma, The Next Killing Fields. Yeah. That cracked my veneer of certainty. And from that, at the time, there was no real conversation about the role of trauma in life. I had never witnessed human rights violations. I had never seen people being shot. I'd never been under airplane rocket attack. I'd never seen women who had come out of areas of, of, of slavery where they had been in chains and being systematically raped. Mm. And so as horrific as it was for them, I had an American passport that I could leave, but I was shaken. I was shaken in a way that wasn't vulnerable, but exalted, excited, mm. indomitable. I began to do drugs. I began to do pharmaceuticals. I began to do alcohol. And my window pane of certainty about my enlightenment was cracked. Right. 
So would, would you class this as a nihilistic episode or, a, or a, is it, was it a post-traumatic stress disorder? I think PTSD it was, in retrospect, it was PTSD. Right. And you were trying to self-medicate that. Afterwards. Without a doubt. It wasn't on the table psychologically at that time. I got onto Prozac and uh, uh, clonazepam, sleeping pills, alcohol. Um, you described that as your belief system was shattered in Buddhism. Is no, that how it was? No, or? because it played into the higher dimensions of the first noble truth that Alan, you know, there's comforts and then there's horrors. Yes. It's the Dostoevskian phrase, that, you know, that God and the devil are fighting there in the battlefield of the human heart. But if mm. you let those convulsions play out into the world, I mean, if we were to pause right now, mm. and we had flat screens everywhere in this shala, and we could see downtown Los Angeles, the derelicts, the horrors, mm. the shootings in mm. some areas. We could see the, the, the terrible carnage in Damascus mm. or in other places in Syria. In the 10 million or 4 million or 2 million or one person that's starving in death and under tyranny in Yemen. Mm. And just, we just, oh my God, if we had a young child here who was bloated, who was eight years old and lost his mother and father and sister and brother and his eyes were sunk deep in his mind, we'd see that starvation would blow our mind. I had my mind blown. Alan, is it not a prerequisite for being that we have this kind of dualistic reality? Like we have happiness because you have this misery and you have, you know, good because you have evil. Like well, that's the, the very nature question. of our being is based on this kind of yin and yang. But uh, why I stopped teaching was because I could not, in good faith, have those experiences and then talk to people in white, middle, upper class, right. okay. California lifestyle yeah. about relationship issues and money issues who are driving to the retreat in a BMW. Because it seemed insignificant in comparison to... It's white, middle class angst. I had no interest at that point anymore. Right. Okay. You know, increase your stress, sell your BMW, give me half of it, you'll be happy. <laughs> you know, and my joke at the time to me and others was, listen, sell it all or put it in storage and go off to a refugee camp and serve anonymously. Mm. Either that or get into yoga and sensitize your sorry ass. Mm. No one was doing yoga at the time. And so how do you begin to decathex from affluence? And that became, for me, wasn't my agenda. I never got involved in meditation or yoga to be a teacher. I stopped and I then was invited to do a film, I think I mentioned earlier, about going to the former Yugoslavia during the last year of the war. Mm. And that's when my mind was even more blown. Mm. I've never really recovered from those experiences and I'm grateful for that. Even now, yes. I'm more vulnerable now than I've ever been and I know it's kind of cliched to say that, but. And crying isn't a friend of mine, it's not easy, but I just feel overtly unsure of myself about who I am, what I'm doing, where I'm going, except an uber sensitivity to energy. And almost to the point where I don't want to meditate and I don't want to be so attentive to my diet, I don't want to do yoga, except now the momentum of this transformation seems has its own momentum. I can't stop it. Mm. And so I'm super sensitive to people's eye contact, their body smell, their feeling. And I kind of pride myself there. And all I can see is that 
Intimacy is the highest order of love today. All I want to do is talk with you, commune with you, feel you, understand you, ask you questions, have you talk to me, and do Ubuntu in existential erotic fashion. Mm-hmm. But from the outside, people wouldn't see that of you. I, I don't know if you're aware of that. They wouldn't see that you feel vulnerable or unsure. You're actually from, from through some how women, articulate some, you are and, and how deep it. you are. Some women see it. Oh, they do? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah. Some uh, of the more... feminine look maybe uh, piercing. Some of the sensitive women that I've met, and sen- rare men, but sensitive women will ask, I sense this about you. And it's, you know, it's a beautiful level today of communion. I've mm. kind of called off hope for tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I feel super privileged to be in my life as it is today. I do what I do in order to meet people and to keep utilize it. If you don't use it, you'll lose it. Mm, mm. And to keep discovering out-of-the-box existential sounds and vibrations and ontologies that give me a chance to use the power of language and energy in ways that make music. And do you want to dance together? Are you any closer to to self-realization than you were 20 years ago? Yeah. You're closer. So progress can be made. I feel more intimate with conscience, a deep sensitivity to right and wrong. Right. I feel more articulate with boundaries on what I'm willing to endure and not. I feel more able to pay whatever price there is for authenticity without concern, although occasionally I have a little doubt and it's easy at times to feel a little bit of shame, but I Mm -hmm. just keep using it and do it and try to improvise do you think a sense of morality is a good barometer for, for self-realization? It's a sense of morality, a deepening morality, a deepening empathy for other, I mean. To yourself, for sure, and other. You know, morality here, an ethical sensitivity to restraining from things that you'll later regret, mm. having insight into that later, more sooner than later. Mm. And knowing how shame is reenacted without conscience, and so being sensitivity of of how you reenact shameful states of mind and thoughts by doing things that are aberrant that you'll only regret. Could you give an example of something like that? Yeah, saying something that's really not appropriate to someone that you could say more skillfully by this method. Right. So that you talk a lot about dignity as well. Dignity is important, the way you sit. You know, I've mentioned to you and others that I've seven years in with a colleague of mine, mm. Fergus Har- uh, Harlow. We've been interviewing and writing a book on political prisoners in Burma, mm. interviewing them. And one of the things that I found in my interviews is how they often survive was how able they were to embody dignity. Right. And dignity in yoga for me is how able am I able to sit in my self-respect. Self-respect yes. is very much connected to my... Uh, consciousness and commitment to truthful speech, the timing of my speech, mm. the intention that I communicate, the, the, the states of mind infused in my language, and the respect for not having an attachment to the outcome mm. of what I say so that mm. I'm not playing it safe. And my behavior is knowing what to restrain, knowing what to do. It's not comfortable enough to have friends who just want my well-being, I want to see actions to help support my well-being. Mm. And I say that for me as well. I want to be able to give to you, not just think about giving. So morality is a huge issue both to myself, the moral regard that I have for what I think and say and how I eat and how Mm. I sleep, Mm. 
and how I breathe. And now, do you think if we if you, you say you know people can change in, in certain situations of genocide and in, in these situations that you've encountered? Do you think that you now put into that situation would be more resilient? through your experience and where you've come to now, more resilient to identifying with the in-group, out-group behaviors. It's, it's evident a lot in Viktor Frankl's work and a lot of the, the, how, the, how the Jews were treated in Auschwitz and the concentration camps. They behave with dignity and honor and, 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 and camaraderie rather than uh, breaking down to animalistic fear. And, and, and I'm not sure because I wouldn't trust how I would be in more complex situations. Right. You know, um, I watched my mother and father and three friends in different ways pass away the last couple of years. I, a relationship that I, we were both very dedicated to one another ended. Um, people in my family were murdered. Mm. Uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, a mentor and friend has been wrongly vilified. I've lost financial agreements through books and films. It's been a collapse. Yes. Um, I am surprised that I am sitting, not just sitting, but sitting tall. <laughs> I'm breathing. I'm back to yoga. I'm back to diet. I'm back in the realm of the senses. Uh -huh. Friendships have brought me here, gotten me here. This resilience that I've seen in fighting the edge of trauma and reenacting self-suffering. Yes, to answer that question, yes, I've gone done you well. You more resilient. I've yes. done well and more skillful. And what I would say about skillfulness is, you know, like the president I was saying earlier, yeah. Donald Trump. I'm surprised at how many intelligent people so vilify him mm. when in fact I don't understand the efficacy of vilification or demonization satire yes yes but shouldn't we be focusing on positive solutions yes uh, I mean Marianne Williamson who's running for president is remarkable this lady is super smart and re-envisioning the power of love and changing institutions of denigration mm -hmm. but in this process if she wins or not Mr. Trump, why are people around the world, shamans, teachers, yoga teachers, meditation teachers, the corporate 500, and full, trying to teach him mindfulness to evolve himself emotionally and spiritually? Mm. Why isn't he being given high doses of ayahuasca? <laughs> why isn't he in a, in a massage therapy, breath work? Why aren't people really encouraging? Because if he just aligned himself with Oprah, or if he aligned himself with Eckhart, Mm. and became a power of an hour. Yeah. Or if he aligned himself by coming to Yoga Barn and did a workshop with one of the local breath workers, did something remarkable, he would win over millions of spiritual people around the world as a transformational genius. Mm. Mm. And it would be one of the greatest coup d'etats in the world to all of a sudden, if we could focus on one man's transformation rather than the whole world's transformation. Mm. And so a lot of misplaced energy and activism today is not so much trying to move the masses, yeah. but really trying to change the dialogue and how we deal with adversaries. That's what I love about Aung San Suu Kyi, among many things, is that she refuses to vilify even those who should be vilified. Right. But she's taken a higher order revolutional position. Mm. What's the point? Because everyone's got blood on their hands. Yes. 
And there's the potentiality in every person to, to have the attributes of the person you're vilifying, right? It's within us to be. We are all the things that we hate in many ways at different times of the day, you know? You know, you're up on the cross. I mean, I was a good Christian. They know not what they do. Mm. But don't stop there. Help them, evolve them into a higher order understanding of what they could know. Mm. Mm. What does Mr. Trump not know? creating unbelievable circumstances of higher order redemption. And if I were to be anything in this world that I would want to believe, because I could be the Donald Trump, I could be the mind that shot Martin Luther King, I yes, could, be could be who created the genocide in Yugoslavia. Mm. You could do that, I could do that. I want to understand what I don't know. Yes. And how can we communicate to people to study what they don't know? Um, Going from the macro to the micro, back down to the individual, what would any advice you would have for somebody that was struggling with alcoholism, pharmaceutical addiction, some of the things that you've talked about already? Um, where's a good starting point for some people? Beautiful. There are people listening and watching that are struggling. Huh? Beautiful. I'm such a fan of not demonizing the use of substances. No. Even the use of addiction. Yes, be real, be honest. If it's ruining your marriage and ruining your home life and your children are being affected, wake up. Mm, mm. Find someone who can talk to you with fire and compassion and resolve and learn the beauty of beautifying an addiction through conscious restraint. I never knew the joy <laughs> of abstinence from momentary pleasures that were so receding that the more I did it, the more badly I felt addiction. Mm, mm. And even in moderation, mindfully smoking a cigarette, six months mindfully, slowly inhaling, slowly microdosing, and how I did it until eventually I was the one in control, not it. Mm, mm. And the beauty of self-control over the slavery of an addiction, the joy of choice. My Lord, you can sleep, you can walk, you can eat, you can make love, you can sleep, you can do anything because you're not a sheep based upon the denial of an addiction. In the depths of it, though, it's almost you can't see those things. Well, the, the cliche, it, yeah, you're right. The cliche is you've got to hit bottom it, before you can get it's up. It's like you, none of those things are apparent of all the doors that open up once you finally get sober, you finally kick the habit, you stop smoking cigarettes, you take responsibility, you know. I asked a senior member of AA who was on the board of directors for years who came to one of my retreats. Oh. I said, sir, I have a question. He says, ask up, young man. I said, what advice would you give an addict? He said, do it until you die. <laughs> and that's been my advice. Mm. Do it with such joy, such dignity, that when you drink, you drink as if it's sacred to your enlightenment. Mm. And stop demonizing that to drown out your sorrowful denial. Mm -hmm. Do it with sacred awareness. That's all I could suggest. That's what he was saying. That's what we talked about for the rest of the retreat. How to do it until you die through sacred awareness. And right at the precipice where you're going over the cliff, hello, I'm going to live. And you see that that level of sacred mindfulness was actually necessity to be more whole and to come out of that, mm. that realm of the addiction enslaving you. 
and have a couple of near-term friends and a couple of mentors and one person who's in your camp. All you need is one. Yeah. And you're home free. Right. And see that it's also sometimes not a shortcoming. Many people marginalize addicts or people who no, they're are... they're some of the most interesting people on the planet. Let's call them the most interesting. <laughs> yeah. Okay. They're amazing. You know why? There's, because there's a reason behind it. They're yeah. human. Yeah. And they're sensitive mm. to the incredible violence of culture. Mm. Artie Lang, the radical psychiatrist from your country, he said insanity is a sane response to an insane world. Mm. Krishnamurti, the Indian... It is no measure of success to be profoundly adjusted to a sick society. Mm. You know, what addiction does someone who's working at Google or Facebook or Goldman Sachs or any number of the, the weapons manufacturers? Mm. Look at the addictions that we have to things that are culturally sanctioned. Mm. Those who break lockstep with those culturally sanctioned monetary success influencers, pride mansion, private jet killers, war machine presidents, those are the psychopaths. Mm. Addicts with alcohol, coke, morphine are the sane ones on the road to freedom. Would you agree that there is a kind of relationship it. of creativity and art, artism in, in that crowd? I mean, look at some of the most... Wonderful creative people, Amy Winehouse, Kurt Cobain, Robin Williams. As a, I, as an I, actor. I, I very some link there. I, I hear you. I'm very reluctant to glorify the value of a substance mm. and the abuse and the violence of that mm. to your souls, to your family, to mm. your friends. It's like things happen yeah. through the struggle. Almost every human being can be creatively expressive if he or she is supported and finding your voice and letting yourself be liberated from your fear of conformity yeah you know so but i'd prefer that they get i'd call it healthy and autonomous and sober and more consciously codependent than their art because mm. i know the crucifixion the struggle the violence of alcohol of coke of pharmaceuticals they're they're treacherous psycho forms of slavery yes yes so well I, we are going to do this again i'm sure uh, on other topics but i do have one final question for you for today thanks again for going through this with me it's 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 amazing uh, I'm, I'm really glad it's worked out because <laughs> i was a bit nervous you know but um the question is for me if you look back on everything that you've done what is the most poignant for you, like, what do you think is the most? Would you look back and you think that was, that was the best thing that I did in my life? And it may not necessarily be a good thing, but um, but what was it? I could say it's more of a state of mind, Ryan. And if I were imagining my daughter, younger people, the future of life, mm. unborn life, mm. a new planet, a new system, an ear beyond the ecosystem, the planetary orbit that we're in, our galaxy, this universe, this dimension, some audible way of recognizing this conversation, speaking to him and her, whatever that intelligence is, what would we want them to hear? What would I want to share? Study whatever it is that allows you to know yourself in relationship, that cognitive, transparent consciousness, for lack of better terms, know how you delude yourself through self-deception, mm. study the machinations of denial, repression, delusion, and do everything you can to imbue the Sanskrit word dharma to inner being 
and interbeing and bring yoga into that out of compassion for the context that you see yourself. Mm. So that compassion informs your intelligence. Mm, mm. Whatever that is that you heard, trust it, intuit it, take risks for it, embody it. Perfect. And if anybody would like to find out more about you, is there anywhere they can go and, and check you well, out on Amazon through any of the yeah, I mean, routes? I make a living by being. Um, I love my work. I love my voice. I do twice-weekly broadcasts. My website is alanclemens.com. Any way that you want to support my life, any way you want to come into my life, you want to get married, you want to date, you want to have babies, you want to die together, yeah. you want to give me land, you want to, whatever it is, call me up, speak to me, and invite me into your heart. So the website is www.worlddharma, right? Worlddharma.com or my name, Alan. Yeah, Alan Clements. I mean, your books are all available on Books Amazon. are on my website. And on, on, on your Amazon. Website, yeah. And there's a YouTube channel on route. That's know? right, YouTube channels on the works and... Great. Yeah, I'm just honored to be here, Ryan. Thank uh, you. Thanks a lot. Time. Yeah, thank Namaste. you. Namaste. Namaste. Thank you.